Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Minnesota, land of 10,000 lakes, home to the perennially unfortunate Minnesota Twins, and the only state not to vote for Ronald Reagan in 1984. This week, we're joined by John Hinderacher, Minnesotan and president of the Center of the American Experiment, a free market think tank holding the line against the state's historic left-of-center populist tendencies. We'll discuss the Project Veritas allegations of illegal ballot harvesting in Minneapolis, ruminate over how true defunding the police has never been tried, and talk a little bit on big labor in the state. Uh, before we begin, John, could you tell us a little bit about yourself in the center of the American experiment? Well, sure. Um, I'm a lawyer by trade. I practiced law actually for 41 years with a large law firm headquartered primarily in Minnesota. I retired from the law business at the end of uh, 2015 and took over as president of Center of the American Experiment, Minnesota's conservative policy organization, which has been around for about 30 years now. Along the way, starting in uh, about 1990, I became a political activist. I started writing op-eds with my friend and then long, at that time, law partner, Scott Johnson. And um, later on, we founded the website Powerline in, in the spring of 2002 site that has now gotten uh, well over a billion uh, page views. And so I've been sort of combining these various activities over the years. You see. Last week, the conservative undercover video research outfit Project Veritas released video purporting to show a campaign worker in Minneapolis collecting a large number of absentee ballots in an alleged ballot harvesting scheme. Local authorities have said they intend to investigate, who knows whether they will or not, uh, John, what do you make of this and uh, similar allegations of election fraud and election law violations? Well, I guess what I know about it is what I know from uh, seeing the Project Veritas videos. What, what they researched and investigated uh, has to do with the very large Somali community in the Twin Cities, primarily in uh, Minneapolis. And many, many of these folks are constituents of Ilhan Omar, herself, of course, a, a Somali refugee. And, and the videos appear to document uh, an extensive scheme of, uh, of voter fraud that involves uh, paying people uh, for their votes, basically. I mean, this is, uh, this is we have a mail-in this... voting system in Minnesota that really facilitates this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we've seen. So, so with... for example, one of the things that they can do. Oh no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one of the things they can do is to is to uh, pay somebody, a resident of one of these high-rise buildings that's full of you know Somali immigrants. Uh, pay someone to request an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot, uh, and then when it comes, uh, you know, fill it out the way they want it filled out, uh, send it back in and hand the guy some cash. Uh, that is very, very easy to do uh, with the uh, the mail-in votums I mean, this, uh, voting this reminds, system you know, that we have here in Minnesota. This, as a something of a student of American political history, this reminds me, you know, this Reminds me of things like Tammany Hall. You know, my, my family are, you know, New York Irish, you know. So Tammany Hall, when the, the Irish immigrants got off the boat, was the Democratic machine that ran New York City in the late 1800s, became infamous for its corruption, uh, and would, you know, they'd, they'd register voters, they would help voters get to the polling stations and encourage them to vote the Tammany line. Uh, would, would you say, does Minneapolis have a sort of machine political culture like that? 
I think it does. I think the Democratic Party has controlled Minneapolis for so long that it's it's deeply ingrained. And then I think the, the Somali immigrant community adds a, a different twist to it. So, for example, uh, one of the things that came out in the Project Veritas videos is that uh, a lot of these people don't speak English. Uh, and so they can bring interpreters with them to the polls. And so these uh, people who are working for or on behalf of Ilhan Omar will uh, will accompany these people to the polls, slip them a little bit of money, and then they'll actually fill out the ballot. They'll, they'll go into the booth, you know, with the voter, the alleged voter who doesn't mm-hmm. speak English, and, and they'll, in the capacity as translator, actually fill out the ballot. I'm not sure Tammany Holliver went quite that far. <laughs> But I think there's well, there's we, definitely an we analogy. We did see there. on the other side of the, uh, I guess on on our coast, the uh, in New Jersey earlier this year, there were elections. I believe they they uh, ultimately judged to throw them out, throw out the results, and have a real a, a redo uh, in Patterson, uh, a city of three hundred thousand people in in metropolitan New York, uh, in New Jersey, where there were. Uh, using an you know it was using an all male uh, an all male voting system, and there was there were ballot har- there was ballot harvesting. One of the candidates was implicated, and even the Democratic state attorney general uh, had to file charges against people uh, for breaking New Jersey's election laws. Uh, and again, this these allegations sound similar, although uh, the ones in New Jersey obviously are at this point more substantiated. Well, it's similar. Uh, I think I think that's right. We've got multiple things going on here, though, Michael. I mean, like a number of other states, I believe, um, the state of Minnesota sent out uh, mail-in ballot applications to every registered voter in the Ma- state. Mail-in ballot applications? Well, that's got to be at least... Mail-in ballot applications or actual mail-in ballot? Because I know in D.C., the, the District of Columbia, they actually sent absentee ballots to every registered voter, and what that has led to on Twitter is a number of people, it's gotten to the point where even the, I mean, DC's sort of infamously hard liberal, you know, 95-5 Democratic, uh, you know, even the local lifestyle blogs are starting to say, what do you, you know, have put forward, like, what do you do if you get somebody else's absentee ballot? Uh, In our prime, in Maryland, I live in Maryland, our Maryland primary elections, uh, you know, we we just bought our house and we got an absentee ballot and discarded it uh, for somebody who no longer lived at the residence. You know, th- this is not, this yeah. is a, it seems to be a widespread problem. This kind of thing is happening a lot. These are absentee ballot applications, um, but you can fill out the application and send it in. There's no quality control. You know, if you sign the name of the person to whom the application or the invitation, you know, was addressed, uh, they'll send you the ballot. There used to be a even though, even a though statutory... just for the record, that is very illegal. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. Uh, there used to be, uh, or there still is, a statutory requirement in Minnesota that absentee ballot signatures be witnessed. So at least you have to have a confederate, you know, mm. willing to witness your signature. The uh, Democratic Party has basically voided by way of a collusive settlement of a lawsuit. They voided that witness requirement. Like a suicide, Michael. I mean, a friend co- of mine. Collusive settlement. That's like a suicide deal where the the activists the activists sue and then yeah the yeah the, yeah, yeah, the Democratic Party. The, and the yeah. friendly state attorney yeah, general. Yeah, the Democratic just Party the lined up some plaintiffs. Right, the Democratic Party lined up different groups of plaintiffs, one in federal court, one in state court. 
uh, to sue the Secretary of State, a guy named Steve Simon, who views it as his job to maximize the opportunities for voter fraud, apparently, uh, seeking to void the witness requirement on the grounds of COVID, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and he immediately settled both of those cases, uh, agreeing to enter an order that um, would void that statutory requirement for the 2020 election. The Republican Party intervened in both of those cases, objecting to the settlement. The federal judge uh, refused to approve of the settlement. It was obviously mm-hmm. collusive. He said no, and it wouldn't approve it. The state court judge did approve it. So they mm-hmm. got two bites at the apple. And they they succeeded in in, in voiding the witness requirement. But to your point, Michael, you know, I have friends who have told me that, um, in fact, have sent me pictures, sent me photographs of of ballots that were delivered uh, to their address. Uh, In one case, there were three ballots, one to the guy who owns the house, my friend, Mm -hmm. and two ballots addressed to the couple that used to own the house who have now moved to Arizona. So if he wants to vote three times, there's nothing to stand in his way. In another other, case, other than his own, other than his own honesty. <laughs> yeah, no, right, exactly, right. I'm not saying everybody will do it. You know, I'm, most people, I'm sure, won't, but some people will. And and the problem is, we'll never know. We'll never know how many decided to take advantage of such obvious, uh, such easy opportunities. In another case, a friend of mine told me about three ballots came to his house, all with the same address. In other words, they came to the right address. Mm-hmm. One for him, one for his wife, and one for a guy that he'd never heard of. And what was especially strange about that is that he and his wife built the house. So no one has ever lived in it except them. And yet, you know, here's a ballot to uh, to that address uh, in the name of a guy they never heard of. So, you know, uh, there's very little effort is being made to... you know, to to, to, to ensure that people are voting the ballot, voting the ballot that they're supposed to vote. The, the other thing that I just don't know how it's going to work, when you think about the numbers involved, you know, we lived through the Coleman-Wellstone Senate race of what was that, 2006? 2008. 2008. Eight, was it? Yeah, okay. Or the, the Coleman-Franken. Did I say that wrong? I'm you sorry. Say, you say, you said I, I said yeah, Wilson. No, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It was, it was the Coleman uh, Franken race. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you know there there was a it was a few thousand absentee ballots that had paralyzed the country you know for three weeks. Well, now we're not talking about thousands. We're talking about millions. And at a bare minimum, somebody manually for every one of these mail-in ballots they get, somebody is going to have to you know look at the the name and address, figure out what precinct that person lives in, go to those precinct records and see whether that person uh, voted, voted, you know, in, in, in person. Well, you know, one of my, one of my, we can't even get to the point where my, you know, what I think is at at this point, only a half-baked idea that, you know, every time, you know, when, when, when you move, obviously you go to the DMV for, you know, move out of state, you go to the DMV for the new, uh, for the new state, you know, you, you feel like I feel like the DMV for the new state should tell the old state that, hey, you've moved and you should probably cancel their voter registration and cancel all their DMV stuff. You know, we can we can reg- we can register to yeah. vote at the DMV, but we can't get that. We can't can't make sure you're disenrolled where you're not living anymore gets taken care of. Yeah, so, well, and, you know, one of the problems here, obviously, is the voter registration rolls are notoriously poorly maintained. Uh, it's been true for a long time here, as as I'm sure in many other states. 
Yeah. So uh, speaking of crime, uh, we all remember how the demonstrations and riots that have consumed America initially and allegedly over police misconduct, but now by by now expanding to all sorts of whatever the left is looking for this week, and not to mention just general desire for public disorder. Uh, they all started in Minneapolis after the police custody death of George Floyd. Now, when that happened, the city announced that it would abolish its police force to be replaced with, it was never really clear. Um, but now we've seen reporting that the city has given up and will retain its police force. Uh, is that true? What does that tell us? What do we know? <laughs> well, yeah, the story is a little more complicated than that, <laughs> in that uh, the Minneapolis City Charter actually requires the maintenance of a police department of a certain size as a percentage of the city's population. So the Minneapolis City Council doesn't actually have the authority legally to so, so abolish the police department. So it's basically under the city constitution, it's unconstitutional. What amounts to the city constitution, it's unconstitutional. It, it, it would be for the city council to literally try to defund the police department. So what they did was they, they did pass a city council resolution uh, wanting to put on the, the ballot at the next election for this, for the, as an amendment to the city charter, uh, a proposal to um, replace the police department with some totally undetermined, you know, uh, social worker organization or something, mm -hmm. never clear what. And there's a group called the Minneapolis City Charter Commission that mercifully <laughs> just refused to put that on the ballot. They said it needed further study. And so and so the 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 effort to defund and disband the Minneapolis Police Department just kind of fizzled out well, as a I, legal I matter. And then, of course, the next thing that happened, Michael, is what always happens when you see these uh, attacks on law enforcement, uh, the police departments will pull back, you know. So yeah, you know the we we had, it made national news that the Minneapolis City Councilors, the same people who were saying you know we need to defund the police, were then shocked when crime went up after they yeah, threatened crime, to do this. Yeah, record homicide rate, violent crime spiking, and the uh, Minneapolis City Council had the temerity to call in the chief of police and demand to know why the police weren't doing more about about violent crime. So that's where we sit right now. Um, so and, now. Now, who are some of the or the groups? I mean, there we've seen reporting about this Communities United Against Police Brutality group. Or who are these people who want to defund the police? You know, it's really interesting, Michael, because uh, you know my organization polls on policy issues uh, mm. every quarter for our magazine, and we find that statewide about eighty-five percent of Minnesotans support law enforcement. You can ask the question different ways, but you get the sure. same answers. About eighty-five percent support law enforcement. There are two places where that's not true, within the city limits of Minneapolis and the city limits of St. Paul. People, in large part, do not support law enforcement and so and so it, to some extent you've got the astroturf and this is something the far left is promoting but you also see you know a fair amount of uh, of of citizens primarily white liberals who live mm -hmm. for example in the city of minneapolis who really are anti-police and there have been some kind of almost bizarre episodes and is that of, and and does that you know because again i like i said i'm from maryland and a couple years ago uh there was a big scandal in Baltimore with the Gun Trace Task Force, where literally this squad of cops that were supposed to be enforcing Maryland's draconian gun control laws were doing things like planning evidence, 
were robbing people that they were supposed to be investigating, were taking kickbacks from drug dealers, and a bunch of them had to were charged federally. Had, there hasn't been that in Minneapolis, has there? No, no, no. It's it, what's going on. It really stemmed from the George Floyd incident. The the the, the circumstances of which are still very murky in terms of his drug overdose and and so forth. But it's all about alleged uh, police racism and brutality. There isn't, mm. to my knowledge anyway, uh, any history of, of corruption mm. uh, to speak of. That, 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 might, that might be driving people to distrust the police above and beyond just what they're seeing on the television. No, I don't think so. No, I think it's totally the, you know, the race issue that we've all been convulsed by in recent mm-hmm. months. And so, uh, Kind of before we go, uh, an issue near and dear to my heart, and that's uh, labor unions. Um, you know, I I wonder if you would agree with me when I say that the way that Minnesota's labor movement has evolved has sort of paralleled the national one. There used to be this strong private sector uh, union tradition, especially when I'm thinking of Minnesota, I'm thinking of the Iron Range, that mining region uh, in the north in the northeast of the state. Um, but that that's broadly been supplanted by the government worker unions, the teachers, the cops, the civil servants. Um, how, how have those, one, am I completely out to lunch? And two, how have those changes affected Minnesota's political eco- politics and economy? Well, what you describe is exactly what we've seen in, in Minnesota. When we talk about unions now, basically you're talking about public sector unions, government unions, and by far the biggest political force in Minnesota is the teachers union. It's called Education mm-hmm. Minnesota. Yeah, edu- Education far, Minnesota NEA. <laughs> yeah, they are far and away the biggest uh, political force in this state. What's interesting is how the private sector unions, well, one, they've shrunk, as you know, but two, mm-hmm. they've migrated to the right. So you mentioned the Iron Range, and of course, these people have figured out that the Democrats in St. Paul then, are trying to put put them out of business. But then so, is that is that just the 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 working man him or you know working man and working woman themselves have have figured this out or have even their have even their union official them figured this out? Even union official them. I I believe every private sector union in northern Minnesota has endorsed Donald Trump. We've seen a total reversal. You know, the private sector unions are mostly on the right. And in particular, when you get an area like the like the Iron Range, where you're talking about, you know, mining, heavy industry, um, uh, this has become heavily Republican. That I that is very surprising to me. I would have thought that it would have been just at the individual level, not pushing up towards the the union officers and the union political machines. Well, I think that's how stark it's gotten, Michael. I mean, I think all these folks know they may be union officials, but they've figured out uh, that the Democrats just want to put them all out of business uh, and the Republicans are on their side. I don't think a union official in northern Minnesota in, in a private sector union could survive very long if he if he maintained loyalty to the uh, Democratic Party. Well, on that bombshell, with respect to the good folks at Top Gear. That's our show for this week. Uh, Thank you, John, for uh, joining us. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.